You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law. Some complicated international law issues here. What kind of docket is Chief Justice Roberts facing? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Neil Devins, a professor at William & Mary Law School. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is this essentially the Fifth Circuit haunting? He has presided over a so-called hot bench at the Supreme Court. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Shortsleeve in for June Grosso. Coming up on the show, 2021 highlights from the high court. We'll also discuss what's next for the vaccine mandate case that the Supreme Court will decide soon. Plus, the future of ownership of the Denver Broncos. But we begin with cybersecurity, supply chain attacks, and software exploitations. They are set to continue into next year with no signs of reprieve. They post reputational and regulatory risks for businesses, as well as legal ones. To discuss some of those legal risks, we bring in Brandon Van Grack, partner and co-chair of Morrison and Forrester's National Security and Global Risk and Crisis Management Group. Let's talk about ransomware attacks. Obviously, 2020, 2021, very troublesome as it relates to ransomware attacks. What does 2022 look like? I mean, have we learned anything yet? 2022 is really going to be a bellwether to sort of uh, whether we are taking the right we being sort of the U.S. government and the U.S. public as a whole are taking the right approach to ransomware. I think what you've seen in the last couple of years, as you said, is 2020 was supposed to be the year of ransomware. 2021 has much worse. So I don't don't know what the, um, you know, what the next level is, but 2021 was obviously very, very bad. But at the same time, we saw in 2021, really for the first time, the U.S. government treat ransomware as a national security threat and use tools in ways we've never seen before with respect to the threat. And so really what we're going to see in 2022 is, is it working? Uh, You know, are, in fact, is this approach an effective approach? And I think we'll really um, 
be able to see early in 2022 whether it's working or not. Because the reality is, I think most people would say, even as the year comes to an end in 2021, it has still been a, a, a record year in terms of how bad the threat has been. And when you talk about, is it working, what are you referring to? A whole bunch of things when it comes to, to the U.S. government. Uh, it's really adopted uh, uh, sort of almost a paradigm shift in terms of dealing with the issue of ransomware and, again, treating it as a national security threat, which means the U.S. government is trying to use all of its tools to address the threat. And so uh, some of that uh, are criminal charges. The Justice Department has charged a number of individuals and entities involved in ransomware attacks. Uh, It involves seizing some of the money, some of the ransoms that have been paid from these ransomware actors. It involves sanctions, which uh, are another tool the U.S. government has that bans the uh, provision of goods or services to uh, uh, entities or individuals involved in these ransomware attacks. It involves international cooperation, getting cooperation from other governments and other entities in these attacks. It also involves, and this was was quite remarkable, the U.S. military, the U.S. Cyber Command, confirming that they have been assisting with uh, trying to disrupt these ransomware attacks and actually were engaged in offensive operations to try to disrupt these ransomware actors. And so everything that I just went through, and and I probably left out four or five other things, are are all actions that we just really haven't seen before in this space. And the purpose of all these actions are to change the cost-benefit analysis for these ransomware actors. The ransomware groups, they're they're not ideologues. Uh, they're pragmatists. They're individuals and entities that have uh, you know made a cost-benefit analysis that there is profit to be had. And so you have the U.S. government now really trying to reduce those benefits and raise the costs. And we're going to see whether, in fact, you know they've they've uh, done enough of a job to really change that behavior. What percentage do you think of ransomware attacks still go unreported? I mean, for years, everybody, you never heard about this. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Everybody was ashamed or, you know, didn't want to admit that it happened to them. Today, what do you, let's just say, you know, the past year, what percentage of attacks attacks went unreported, do you think? So I think the the best answer I can give is a, a lot still go unreported. Um, and I think what you've seen is uh, really the U.S. government, one of the ways they've tried to address the issue is to really encourage more reporting. It's really been a focus of this, the same thing I've been talking about in terms of the use of all tools, really, in order for the U.S. government to figure out how bad the problem is and to fix it. They need more information. And still, there's a lot that are not being reported. I think you have to, not only is that uh, what, what all experts say, but you have to accept that as a given. Uh, and so part of it is to, you know, I think implicit in your question is uh, both the U.S. government, but just generally the U.S. public has to find ways to improve reporting. And so I think that is a key feature, and I think it remains a key focus of the U.S. government to try to, to, try to improve on that. As an attorney here and representing any of these companies or looking into this issue, what do you have to say when it comes to deciding to pay? First of all, not everyone does. Uh, you know, this is, this is a volume game. And so certainly many do, but, but not everyone does. The reality, though, is it is a complex uh, question in terms of whether to determine whether to pay or not. And uh, the other sort of layer to it is that there are also U.S. laws that we have to be mindful of when you're contemplating whether to make a payment. There are 
like I mentioned, sanctions. And there are some actors that cannot be paid without violating U.S. law. And there are some types of now uh, exchanges that can't be engaged with without violating U.S. law. And so there's there's an additional layer of complexity to the decision-making process that didn't really exist not too long ago. Brandon Van Grack of uh, Morrison and Forrester, we appreciate you uh, taking time and joining us today on Bloomberg Law. My pleasure. Thank you. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Who will sell the Denver Broncos? The owner of the team, presumably. But it's a little more complicated than that. That involves a legal issue dating back to the 1980s, the last time ownership of the NFL franchise switched hands. Andrew Schwartz, professor of law at the University of Colorado, explores this issue. He and I spoke about the case that could lead to the sale of the team. All right, so this goes back uh, to 1984 when Pat Bolin bought the franchise. Bolin bought this franchise from Edgar Kaiser, correct? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And so when Edgar Kaiser sold the Denver Broncos in 1984, one of the terms that the two parties agreed to was a so-called right of first refusal. And what that just means is that if the new owner, Bolin, were to go ahead and want to sell the team at some time in the future, uh, Kaiser had the right to match whatever offer Bolin was willing to take. And if he did so, then Kaiser would 
exercise his sort of option to buy the team through that right of first refusal. All right. And Mr. Kaiser uh, held this right of first refusal. Uh, but upon his death, uh, tell us what happened with that right of first refusal. Right. Uh, according to uh, the, the news that I've read is that sometime uh, after that, Mr. Kaiser transferred his contractual right of first refusal to a corporation, a new entity that I suppose he uh, created for this purpose. It's called uh, ROFR Holdings Limited, so right of first refusal. Um, and so this new entity holds the right of first refusal. And at some point, uh, uh, Mr. Kaiser passed away. And now the, the current owners, Bolin or Bolin successors, are considering selling the Denver Broncos and ROFR Holdings has come along with a letter and notification to the current owners saying, if you are about to accept an offer from someone, we have the right of first refusal to match that offer. Okay. So uh, it's an unusual confrontation that involves the estates of two of the team's deceased owners and one mysterious lender. Uh, again, Pat Boland bought the franchise in 84 from Kaiser, who sold a bowl on the team, and an Arizona businessman named Scott Schrimmer, who, along with Kaiser's estate, owns the entity known, as you pointed out, ROFR Holdings. Okay, it sounds fine so far, but is it? Well, the core principle of contract law is that parties are free to make the, the agreements that they wish. It's called freedom of contract. And in this case, the contract of sale said, Kaiser, you get the right of first refusal, but this right can only be transferred to a subsidiary of you, Kaiser, which, which Kaiser's position is that ROFR Holdings was, and I suppose continues to be, that sort of subsidiary. And the Denver Broncos, I think the current owners, it's my understanding they take the position that uh, ROFR Holdings is not, uh, it can no longer exercise this right of first refusal um, under the terms of the contract. Because the ownership essentially changed there and involving this other Arizona businessman? I think the Arizona businessman was involved in financing some other litigation between these parties. And as part of the uh, transaction, I suppose, uh, received a piece of ROFR holding. Right. OK. So obviously this is a significant issue for the Denver Broncos because nobody is going to want to step in and try to buy an NFL franchise and spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, just to even get to a point of uh, a possible sale or purchase, uh, if they know at the last second, uh, it could just be swept away by somebody else's right of, of, of first refusal, correct? That, that, is, that is exactly correct. Um, one point to note is that the holder of the right of first refusal would have to show that he is, quote, ready, willing, and able to exercise and to match at that point. And it might be an open question whether ROFR Holdings 
has the financial wherewithal to match a multi-billion dollar offer. But right. th- we haven't reached that point yet. All right. So we're talking with Andrew Schwartz. He's a professor at the uh, University of Colorado School of Law. And we're talking about this lawsuit that uh, may pave the way for a Denver Broncos sale. Okay. So legally, you look at both sides here. You've seen this in great detail. Uh, what do you say about how this gets resolved? Well, uh, t- to be honest, I have not looked uh, very closely at the facts of this uh, particular case. However, in general, what it, what it will come down to is, I think, a very close analysis of the precise language in the contract and then precisely what was done as a matter of corporate law with creating this new entity, ROFR Holdings Limited, transferring the rights in corporate law. This is a corporate entity. Um, everything is technicalities and everything is procedure. Um, So it'll be a a question of whether precisely what was allowed by the contract was precisely executed by Kaiser and this corporation. Now, looking at this Dow Jones article here on this particular topic, it says one of the pieces of evidence was a video deposition of Kaiser uh, taken from prior litigation. And in that, Kaiser states in the video that he understood the right of first refusal meant, it, meant he could transfer the right to a subsidiary of his, but that if it became not a subsidiary of mine, uh, it says then the right terminated. So is this entity uh, uh, a subsidiary of his? I can tell you an easier case would have been if somewhere along the line Kaiser uh, transferred for $100,000, let's say, this right of first refusal to his cousin Vinny. And then it's clear now the, uh, the rights have been transferred to someone who's not Kaiser and is not a subsidiary of Kaiser. So that'd be an easy case. That's not what he did. What he did was he apparently created a corporate entity. I presume he himself, Mr. Kaiser, was the controlling shareholder. And in that sense, he viewed that entity as a subsidiary of his. And I I don't know uh, who has been holding this or what has happened after he passed away. But I will say that in general, contractual rights, corporate shares, if I'm holding 100 shares of AT&T and I pass away, those shares don't disappear. They go to my heirs. Similarly, if I have an option contract on AT&T shares and I pass away, that option contract would, would go to my heirs and they would be able to execute. In this case, it's complicated by the, by the precise language of the contract, though, with the use of this subsidiary of a person. Usually subsidiaries are corporations owned by other corporations. That's how I would normally understand it. A subsidiary of a person is an odd concept that the court is going to have to think carefully about. Well, I guess that's my next question. And what, How does case law clarify this, this sort of cloudy legal situation? I don't know the precise answer. And I would say that there's probably not precise case law on a situation exactly like this, at least uh, in Colorado. And this is uh, a case in, in before Colorado court. That said, 
the court could look to decisions made by other states, most notably probably Delaware, which is a lot of corporate litigation, to to try to um, uh, get get some education on how others have dealt with it in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, one way or another, this issue has to be clarified before the Broncos can be sold. That would be your understanding, correct? I think it was a wise decision by the current owners to go ahead and, and file this lawsuit, which is against ROFR Holdings, to try to get a clear answer on this before they went ahead. So I take it that they view it as uh, imperative to clarify whether or not this right of first refusal is validly held by ROFR Holdings. Andrew Schwartz, professor of law, University of Colorado. Appreciate taking time and uh, joining us on Bloomberg Law. Thank you very much. Good day. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every night at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. The show is produced by Eric Mallow for Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Shortsley. Thank you for listening. And remember to tune into the next edition of Bloomberg Law right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.